Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 315 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcasts, or episode two of 2022. And that makes sense to have a lot of twos. It is February 22nd of 2022, and let's just say it's 2 p.m. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who may just be in contention for the race director position, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, Robin. It is, as I said, Tuesday afternoon, February 22nd, and Chris and I are going to talk about the brand new 2022 spec Formula One cars and, you know, a couple other things. Chris, where do you want to start? Yeah, it's been uh, exciting times in Formula One land with, uh, with cars, 22 spec cars shown in a variety of guises. We've had uh, renderings, we've had actual launches, we've had some cars circulating, we've had... Uh, some false dawns, we've had some smoke and mirrors, it's been fascinating. But uh, the overriding news is the fact that the cars look different to each other, which I think is exciting. I think there was a fear that uh, that the latest rules and regulations would mandate cars that were very similar in appearance, and that's not been the case. So we've probably got more variety for this year than we did last year. Yes, absolutely. But uh, to me, that's not the biggest news. I completely agree with you that that is significant and that we are, in fact, seeing what we have seen in the past, which is the first year of a major rule change. We get a wider variety before a quote-unquote winning formula starts to mold into the shape of every Formula One car. But to me, the biggest news was that at the Mercedes launch, Lewis Hamilton was a part of it. Yeah, Lewis is back. Looks like he's uh, ready to compete this season and potentially next. Um, so seemed in pretty good spirits went away, uh, <laughs> took his mind to other places, come back and seems happy and ready to go. Feisty even, I would say he's feisty. Hungry, I think might be a good way to say it. You know, he's, I, I think we're going to see some real passion in his driving that we haven't seen in a while. I, I'm hopeful of that anyway. Yeah, so so we have all the drivers that we were hope, hopeful uh, to get this season. Uh, we've obviously had a reshuffle. We've had some driver contracts, uh, well, at least one notable contract announcement in the last couple of weeks with Lando Norris uh, signing a, a, an extension at McLaren. So now he's uh, he's going to be uh, driving those cars till the end of 25, at least. Um, there's no get-out clauses, so if this McLaren bombs, he's going to be driving it at the back, but hopefully uh, <laughs> it won't do that. Interestingly, uh, Andreas Seidel and Zach Brown also extended their deals with McLaren, so we've got stability there, which uh, is a good thing, as McLaren have been definitely going in the right direction the last few seasons. Um, so from the driver driver perspective you know we've got a couple of teams that are locked and loaded for the, at least the next two years with mercedes and mclaren both with consistent driver lineups you have to go well, and, uh, and alpine um so alpine i didn't think alonso had had uh, re-signed did i miss that news oh i well he's he's through it i i suppose maybe i misinterpreted he's here through this season certainly yeah that's right so there's a lot of long-term driver uh, deals, particularly with sort of the the, the young up-and-coming set. So if you think people like uh, uh, Charles Leclerc, uh, Lando, George Russell, those guys have been locked up long-term. But there are quite a few drivers, including Fernando, who basically um, have a contract through just this year. So Perez uh, at Red Bull, Sainz at Ferrari, Alonso at Alpine, 
and Vettel at Aston Martin all will be looking for, for new seats or to extend their current time in their current seat uh, beyond the, the end of this year. So those guys are all sort of, uh, I guess you could say, slightly less secure in their current drives. Uh, but people like Verstappen, an extension is expected to be announced soon with him and Red Bull. Uh, Ocon obviously locked in that long, long-term deal at uh, uh, at Alpine, we know Stroll's not going anywhere at Aston Martin. Um, but so, so many people are going to be hungry for Stroll. Are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty certain. I'd, I'd bet oh, a lot man. of money on that one. <laughs> that's I, you um, know, that's that's evidence right there that he's uh, race director bound. You got that inside line of knowledge, Chris. Yeah, well, I mean, you've mentioned it for a second time, but I mean, we know who the new race directors are, don't we? So we've got a couple of chaps who have been announced as the replacement for our, our uh, intriguing friend, um, whose name we don't <laughs> need to mention. <laughs> but Niels Wittich uh, and Eduardo Freitas are the two guys who are going to be sharing race director responsibility uh, moving forward. Um, they both uh, have had that type of role in the past. Niels was, uh, had that role for DTM and Eduardo in uh, WEC, amongst other categories. And the best part of the story is they're bringing Herbie Blash back. Now, Herbie is, uh, you know, an old mucker of, of Bernie Eccleston and Charlie Whiting when they were all at Brabham together making <laughs> highly illegal cars like the fan car. So Herbie knows a thing or two <laughs> about running Formula One, and uh, it's going to be fun to see him back out of retirement uh, assisting the two new race directors. So I will tell you, I, I will, I will, out of respect for you, Chris, I will not say his name either, but I will say that uh, <laughs> his name is pronounced much the way someone from, uh, you know, small town Alabama might pronounce Felipe Massa's name. So that is the person uh, who's out he's there. He's going to have that another job official. in the FIA. He's going to be taken care of. So anyone who's uh, in his corner need not worry. He's still gainfully employed. He is still gainfully employed. But it it was fascinating to me because with his departure and these new people coming in and, you know, kind of the, hey, this is the direction we're going, it's without overtly saying it's kind of an admission of wrongdoing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to keep talking about this story, uh, but there's no doubt that you would normally infer from the actions of the FIA that there was a, you know, a a humongous error made uh, in the prior season, but not that they've admitted it. In fact, you know, they say that Mr. He Who Shall Not Be Named did did a great job, and this is no way uh, to do with, you know, some sort of lack of performance or making up the rules as he went along. Right. It's a total coincidence. (laughs) Exactly. He just wanted to go on to past his new... They're not releasing the report that was created into into what happened in that fateful afternoon at Abu Dhabi. Um, and, and they're certainly not suggesting f- for any uh, moment that there should be a re-evaluation of the results, which is all to be expected. Anyone who's followed Formula One or any form of motorsport will know that the FIA generally defends all their actions to the hilt. Uh, then they're never capable of doing anything wrong. Um, and... Uh, Nothing will ever be changed. So that is what it is. Uh, there's no point in getting too upset about it. We have a new season. We have uh, a new structure in place to try and govern the way races are run. They are 
you know, rightfully acknowledging that, that the old race director position was largely untenable for one individual. Um, and so now they've, they've created a better support structure. The director will no longer be able to be directly communicated by the teams. Um, he will have a remote virtual race control to help him make decisions. Um, so all of the, the things that you would have thought would have been in place previously are now going to be put in place for this year. So hopefully yeah. we'll have less of the the nonsense that we saw some sometimes in last season. Yeah, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, but I, I got quite amused as a fun little aside that uh, in uh, the Twitterverse, uh, there was this small but not quiet portion of fans quite angry at Jonathan Wheatley of Red Bull for contacting the um, person who shall not be named over and over and over again, quite egregiously, many people thought. Well, he's doing his job. Yeah, yeah. He was doing his job and he was highly effective at it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, he and the Red Bull team did everything they could to try and, you know, get their man a result and they achieved that. So you, you can only, yeah, that's that's the way motor racing works, right? It's, the gloves are off. This is a high stakes game. You're going to do whatever you can. You're going to lobby whoever you can to to get the situation to favor your man or your team. Uh, and I don't have any problem with that. And, you know, the point of the FIA and the, the, the personnel that are supposed to be running the race is to ensure that it's a level playing field, that the rules are interpreted correctly and, and consistently across all the teams. So that that's where the problem lies, not not with Jonathan Wheatley, that's for sure. Yeah, and it, the irony of what you just said, it, it's absolutely true, but if any of the drivers took their gloves off, it, probably Jonathan Wheatley would make a phone call <laughs> and complain about exactly that. Um, <laughs> there is there is another There was another man that was out, uh, less, still not a huge surprise, but less expected, and that was Otmar, Otmar Safauer. Uh, he is no longer with uh, Aston Martin. Right, but uh, we, he is now at Alpine. So so that was the, the good news. We, we did speculate that Otmar would find another job quite quickly after being... Highly capable at what he does, absolutely. Yeah, so that's a very sensible signing by Alpine, who seem to be making some good decisions... Uh, you wonder if it's going to come a little too late for this season or maybe even next season. But but certainly they're, they're making some uh, good decisions moving forward. How is Otmar's French? Do we know? I mean, they don't speak much French in Dearborn. I know that. Well, good good news for him is they don't speak much French in Enstone either, which is where the, the race team is based. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the, yeah, the, you know, they have the the engine department, the power unit department in, in France, in a place called Viry, I believe, which I think French would definitely be handy. But uh, the race team itself uh, that you, you know started out as Tolman way back in the 80s uh, and then morphed into Benetton, Renault for a while, then then Lotus and a variety of other random names for a yeah, short period yeah. of time. Now back as Renault. Yeah, it's always been known as Team Enstone within the sort of Formula One fraternity and um yeah it's it's in the, the heartland of of you know the the british racing midlands and uh yeah he'll he'll be fine he'll probably be using all the old suppliers that he used to use when he was at team silverstone or you know um aston martin as it's now known yeah 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 no absolutely um so there's more news i i want to discuss that the uh sprint qualifying uh there will be another three 
sprint qualifying events for 2022. Uh, exciting, perhaps? Yeah, that's right. So there was a rumor that we might have six this year, but uh, there's been some some debate over the budget cap and, and the cost of running extra sprints. So they finally came up with a compromise of maintaining the quantity of three. So it's going to be Imola, uh, the Austrian Grand Prix and, and Brazil will we'll host the sprints. But they've tweaked uh, a few other aspects of it. They've, gone, they've uh, decided that the fastest lap of the weekend will now be awarded the title of a pole position. So i.e. the Friday qualifying session on Friday will be called the pole position holder, but then that person will have pole for the sprint and the winner of the sprint will take the first position on the grid for the for the race on Sunday. But pole will go back to the Friday qualifying session, which which is what it always should have really been. Um, Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So what you're saying is who is awarded pole position for the weekend? The fastest driver on Friday. Friday. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But that is not necessarily where they will start on Sunday, which I suppose is not too different from the way it's always been because there's been penalties or uh, grid changes for whatever reason that, that shuffled the Sunday field. And that's been the case for years and years. Yeah. I mean, so they will have pole um, for the sprint race. And that, but that's, you know, depending on how they do the sprint, will determine where they start in the actual Grand Prix. So, I mean, it, it never made sense the way they, the, the way they classified pole as being the winner of the sprint in my mind. And I think a lot of other people were, were unhappy with that, which is why they've made the, the change. So, but they've changed, this is more controversial. They've changed the points. So last year we had three points for the winner of the sprint, two for second, one for the third place. But now the top eight finishers will all score points. Um, eight points really? for the winner. Top eight? Yeah, eight. Whoa. Top eight, I yeah. didn't... <laughs> <laughs> eight points for the winner of the sprint. So that's pretty significant now. That's, that's a Hold on. Wait, haul. wait, wait. Is it eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one? It is, yep. Oh, boy. Okay, so you're starting to get into some weird places where... If you finish first in the sprint qualifying and then second in the race, you will have scored one point more than the winner of the Grand Prix if they didn't score any points in the sprint qualifying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, wow. that's now a significant that's now a significant, you know, tally, right? You can get 24 points from the sprint, which is almost equivalent to a Grand Prix win. So, you know, essentially it's another Grand Prix that's been added. You've got to do well in the sprints um, and, and, and get some decent points or, or you're going to be on the back foot, definitely. Why do they – there's just so much added complication to all of this. It's just, just – it's like, you know what? We need more rules and more sections and more variants. Oh, you're going to love the next rule that we could talk about then. So well, you jump in. The- do you remember the Belgian Grand Prix last year was slightly controversial because they never actually performed a racing lap? They only no, ran they behind two the racing car. laps. They just were very slow behind the pace car. <laughs> right. So, so there were some people unhappy with the half point being awarded to the finishers of that non-event. So they've changed the rules for that. So now this year. You need a minimum of two laps by the leader without safety car or VSC to qualify for points. So by the, by the new rules, Belgium would not have awarded 
any points at all last year. But they now have a very complicated sliding scale. So if you've done more than two laps, but less than 25% of the race distance, there's a certain amount of points no. that are awarded. Oh, come more on. than 25% and less than 50%, there's another slew of points awarded, and then so on and so forth. So in order to get full points for a Grand Prix, there needs to be more than three quarters of the laps performed. You know, if so if only 65% of the laps, the winner would only get 19 points. So that's going to keep us all on our toes as we get some wet Grand Prix. Man, oh man. This I, why? <laughs> why? I mean, do they understand? Okay. Just adding layers and layers of complication that's purely reactionary to something that happened in the past is just going to open itself up. You're going to be rife for more controversy when something slightly <laughs> different happens in the future. <laughs> I just, so much of this is just reactionary nonsense. Uh, sorry, sorry, well, sorry, sorry. Well, I'll put my soapbox away. I apologize. I mean, one, one, on a serious note, I mean, you know, one of the things that happens during a wet race is the drivers, particularly if they're running behind the safety car or, or VSC situation for any p- a period of time, they'll be asked what they think the conditions are like. So now, depending on the championship situation and depending on how your particular car is faring in, in the conditions of the day, you may have drivers lobbying for the race to be curtailed, knowing that the different levels of point payout could influence their championship. <laughs> yeah, the man. Yeah, and this so, plays this this plays in the hands adds importance to the strategists in the team. Of course it does. Yeah, yeah so now this is all know, tables you, and graphs. Man. Yeah, it it's it does seem I mean, I like the fact that they've eliminated the situation that can occur at at Spa because that was that was terrible, particularly for the for the guys and girls who who paid to go and watch a race. That was not acceptable. But this does seem like a, a very complicated answer or solution to that problem, um, which is uh, far from ideal. But should we should we talk about the cars? Because that that's been great to, to see. I, I all wanted the, the to reveals. I wanted to kind of get the silly news out of the way, and then we could dive into the cars a little bit. But is I, there must be some other silly? I feel like we haven't exhausted the news silliness. I I, I, I wrote <laughs> I, we've gone through my notes here, but I'm there's I got to be missing something. Oh, yes, um, yes. No, we are missing something. What is the lorry situation with the sprint qualifying? And also, what if it's wet during the sprint qualifying event? How will those points be divided up? <laughs> you know, if you want to talk silly, here's something silly. Mercedes-Benz did some sort of, and I don't remember the details or long since forgotten them, to allow someone to win a tour of their factory and guess who won? <laughs> guess who won the prize or made the, the highest bid for charity or whatever the case was? It was Christian none Horner. Than Christian Horner. Yeah. So Horner was going to get a VIP tour of the Mercedes factory in Brackley. So then Mercedes had to scan the rules of the competition to find some way to not allow him to take up his prize. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's just gotten to the point where we're all trolling each other. It, it, there's, I don't know. Okay, yes, the race cars. The race cars themselves, at first glance, to me, they looked awful, a lot like Indy cars. Really? Yeah, I oh, thought I so. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, not okay. quite as pretty. You're right. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to offend the Indy car folks. Um. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not seeing that. I mean, they. they, they <laughs> Let are, me ask you a different question. The, Let the, me ask you a different question. Mm-hmm. I am drinking a a morning tea, a breakfast tea. It is a hot tea. I'll let everyone know. I'm drinking it in the afternoon. Is that like a cardinal sin? Am I going to get a letter from the queen? What? Where are the rules about drinking a morning tea in the afternoon? <laughs> well, afternoon tea is is an absolute tradition uh, in in England and Great Britain. So uh, you can drink a breakfast blend in the afternoon, no problem at all, mate. You're on solid ter- territory there. What you can't do is dump ice in it. Yes, I'm. I'm still far from finished in that quest you know i will that is my mount everest and i will i will climb it and open great britain's eyes to the beautiful nature of cooled tea with some lemon oh, it's just delightful but uh in the meantime i i want to i want to i want to i'm like a i'm like a double agent spy i'm trying to get into the system and uh you know um, expand people's minds from the inside Okay, so yes, uh, <laughs> I, I, I always love you. Moving on, I'm lost for words, and this is too stupid for me to respond to. I'm just going to continue. I'm 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 translating for everyone. That's what okay means. <laughs> yes, please. Let's so, talk about the race cars. So, yeah, there there they there is definitely a wider variety than I expected, as we all expected. None of them look like the car that Formula One itself showed last summer, but. There is a wide variety and uh, interesting takes on the rules. Well, I'll have to pick you up on that. So there was one car that looked exactly like the show car from last year. That was the red (laughs) one because people just repainted the show car. (laughs) Yeah, the ones that actually showed their car. I'll add that stipulation. There there are some really grainy images on the uh, the internet showing a Red Bull shakedown at Silverstone. The images aren't very good, but what you can tell is it does look... (laughs) look nothing like their show car um, or their reveal car. So, yeah, there's been... I mean, let's just touch on that. So there's been some real absurd launches here. So has kicked everything off with some renderings of their car. They have since run a shakedown uh, with a car that looks quite different. So I don't know what entirely was the point of that uh, reveal or those renderings because there was no new sponsors. Delivery hadn't changed so it was just sort of a waste of everyone's time. But the good news is, for Has fans, is that they have a car. Um, it's running already. And, uh, you know, it looks like a decent job. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're still using a lot of the Ferrari components. Um, but it looks like a fairly sensible design. Um, and, uh, and so hopefully it'll be more competitive this season. But uh, they, didn't, they didn't make well, any ag- I mean, it egregious darn well better be more tell. competitive this season. I mean... Last year made Williams uh, you know made Williams most dreadful season look not so bad. I mean Haas was just in 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 terrible shape last year. Yeah, I mean Haas, Williams and Alfa Romeo all have work to do to catch up with the midfield, don't they? But um but yeah, I mean so they uh, it's a very sort of Russian-esque theme to it um continuing from last year's look. But yeah, I mean they're out on the track, they're running, so it bodes well for at least, uh, you know, starting the season without reliability issues, hopefully. Red Bull, I guess one of the views about Red Bull, uh, other than their new sponsors, was that Max has decided to use the number one on his car instead of 33. Yes, And it's yes. the first driver since Vettel in 14 to run with number one because uh, Hamilton was never that interested. And, uh, of course, Rosberg retired 
when did they officially make that? I forget which year it was where you could start running your own number as opposed to being one through 20 or 24 or whenever there were some extra teams. Yeah, I don't remember when they... It's been a few years now, hasn't it? Because I think, hasn't Max been 33 since he joined the sport? I would wager, but I'm not 100% sure. But it's been, yeah, it's been quite a few seasons where they picked their number. And so Hamilton's always just... Uh, wanted to run 44 which is a number he's used ever since he was karting and yeah so he's uh, yeah but yeah so you know max is gonna gonna do that so that'll be cool for his fans the uh mr the, I guess the first... winning the championship doesn't change my life yeah exactly but i'm um, slap number one straight on the foot of the car but look hey you know you want someone to be happy about winning the title right i mean that would demean i think the sport if if it was like no great shakes and and you move on. So no, I think his reaction is pretty normal. So the first proper reveal, I would say, was the Aston Martin, uh, the AMR22, which uh, surprised people because <laughs> it's got the world's longest side pods ever created. It's in the record books. Go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting record to hold. Yeah, they've gone their own way with really high side pods that run almost the entire length of the, of the side of the vehicle. Um, and... They've got a significant undercut and cooling louvers. Um, it's uh, it's interesting because there are a couple of other cars out there with longer pods, but most of them are angled down as it goes towards the, the rear axle, but the uh, Aston Martins don't. So it's well, a very I mean, you just inherently, direction. you think about the teardrop shape when you're thinking aerodynamics. I mean, just at, at the highest, most fundamental level, right? And a side pod kind of coming towards the center of the car would be very much part of that teardrop shape. Yeah. You know, the, obviously the aerodynamics of the cars have changed a lot with the tunnels now being introduced for 22. So a lot of the downforce is going to be created by, by the Venturi tunnels that run underneath the floor. Sure. And so, you know, you don't, you're not surprised that the teams are reassessing the rest of the aerodynamic package, but you know, there aren't two side pods that look the same so far. And Aston Martin have gone for this really high, long, long pod. Um, obviously, that's going to affect the airflow through the Coke bottle area in the, in the, in the rear uh, suspension area. Um, so it will be interesting to see if they've come up with something really brilliant or it's a complete disaster. I think the jury's out until we get some lap times and testing. But it's certainly a very unique direction. And there's also been some talk that, you know, Alpine took a slightly different direction as well. And... Uh, you know, that could be, there's some question of like, well, if they've shifted, if they took a different interpretation of the rules, was that cunning or are they going to have to be playing some catch up? Yeah. So Alpine is, is one of the teams that have just revealed, they, they only just revealed their car yesterday. But uh, again, whether or not the actual car that hits the track at Barcelona later this week is the same as the reveal is, is, is obviously to be determined. But yeah, they had longish side pods, but they still had a sloped surface on them. So it was a bit more uh, in keeping with what some of the other teams are doing and not staying high and long like the Aston Martin. I guess the biggest thing about the Alpine was that the BWT has uh, resulted in a lot of pink on the car uh, compared to last year. Um, and that they have a they have a whole new power unit concept around the turbo with the, with the split turbo, same as Mercedes have been running all these years since 2014. So they're hopeful that they might catch up in terms of uh, power unit performance. Well, that's um, that's interesting. You, I find that fascinating because, you know, Honda played with Mercedes split turbo strategy and then bailed on it just a year or two into their venture. 
back in Formula One powertrains, you know, and now officially that's over. But uh, I, I find it fascinating that uh, Renault via Alpine is now taking it up. Yeah, and there are concerns about the reliability. So we might see a lot of detonating Renaults this season, which, you know, Fernando's going to love that. Because he went through that with the Honda, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and coined exactly. the phrase F2 engine. So we might see a rocky relationship between Alpine and, and Alonso this year if, if he doesn't finish many races. Although, to and be fair, I think it was, at the time, it was a GP2 engine, not an F2 engine. Just to be, oh, there you to go. be completely GP2, pedantic right. about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. The other team that's sort of taking their own path is McLaren. Now, McLaren had a really good uh, launch. They, they they showed not just an F1 car, but they showed their, their new Indy car and even an Extreme E car. And they had lots of good interviews with all their drivers. So I thought that was, that was well worth a watch. Um, but their car has completely the reverse suspension solution to everybody else. So they've gone for a pull rod front suspension and push rod rear. Uh, and pretty much oh, it's a push team, rod rear. Okay, I, I I read about the pull rod front, but I didn't know it was push rod rear. Yep, and so most of the teams are running push rod fronts and pull rod rears, which is pretty much what they had been running prior to this season. So McLaren think they may have found a more elegant solution with this switch. Um, certainly, you can see in the front images that by going to the pull rod, it clears uh, the rod itself out of the airflow for the uh, radiator inlets. So whether or not that's ki- critical to their aerodynamic solution, uh, I guess, uh, is, is will be determined. But that's certainly part of the thinking. And then the the uh, the push rod may at the rear may help to clear the suspension linkage and, and the structure required for it out of the Venturi uh, tunnel area or the diffuser area and might give them better performance there. So that's that's the theory doing the rounds, but uh, we shall see if it's actually effective. Yeah, no, that is fascinating. And it, the nerds among us, you have to love seeing these interesting solutions to the new regulations and how to work around it. And this is obviously among the most significant we've seen in quite a while. You could argue more significant even than 2014 because, yes, that was a new and very different powertrain. But this is just the entire car it has fundamentally changed where downforce is generated and um, just how air is supposed to flow over the car and actually puts, in theory, more emphasis on the powertrain because, in theory, you're going to have less aerodynamic help You know, with these rules. It's going to be less sensitive wings and less downforce overall. Well, I think that was the expectation, but... The, the numbers that are that are sort of being rumoured suggest that these cars will be probably as quick as last year's cars by the end of the season. So I'm not and sure. And last how year's much... cars were the fastest ever. So yeah, yeah. So they they probably find you know claw back all the downforce that were lost in the regulation change. But we shall we shall see. One of the most fascinating launches I saw was the Williams for the FW44 Williams. Revealed the is it, car. Is it still an your, FW? So it's still it, posthumously it's still an FW. Frank Williams 44. Yeah, which is a nice touch. Cause that McLaren is, definitely moved, so. Yeah, McLaren used the MCL designation now. I think we talked about this in the past, whereas it used to be the MP4 um, when when Ron Dennis was at the helm. That got ditched when he, he was uh, pushed out. But yeah, good old Frank's initial still still go with every car, which is, which is very nice. But we had... Uh, 
Yost um, and the two drivers revealing the new Williams, uh, which bore no resemblance to the car they then subsequently drove at Silverstone a few hours later. <laughs> right. <laughs> so rather bizarre. And it wasn't like the car was festooned with new sponsors' logos. I mean, I think they did secure a new sponsor in Duracell, but that was pretty much the only name on the car. So... Um, seems like a bit of a wasted effort. The One of the more controversial things uh, was the Williams have been running a Senna uh, sticker normally around the front wing ever since 1995, obviously the year after uh, Ayrton passed away in a Williams. And this year, Williams have decided that that won't appear on the car anymore. And so that... Um, Interesting. Yeah, that, that they basically used was defending it, saying, you know, why should our drivers have to look at that every time they step into the car? And, you know, it's a new era for Williams. We've got to, we've got to move on. And, I mean, you know, it has been more than a quarter of a decade. But still, I, I think I always quarter, like that Quarter touch. of a century, I'm sure is what you meant. Oh, yes, thank you. Quarter of a yep. century. And, um, yeah, it's... It was always a nice tribute, I think, to Ayrton. And I know that the Williams team was, was hugely affected, or at least the, the, those members that were there in 94 were hugely affected by the fact that he uh, died in one of their cars. So it's a sad reflection of moving on with the times. Um, I guess Williams will still be working with the Senna Foundation and doing things to support that, uh, which is good. But it seems to me that they could have kept a sticker on the car somewhere to keep with a little bit more of the the original Williams tradition. But there you go. That's just my view. Yeah. You know, I can see both sides of it, to be honest. I mean, you know, the team has, while not changing names, definitely changed ownership. So I I can see that point of, you know, is this something we do in perpetuity or not? And if not, when is a good time to cut it off? But at the same time, what harm is it really causing to have a center sticker on the car is it a weight penalty? Are Senna stickers heavy? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't understand that. And I, pressure for the drivers, uh, I have a hard time buying that one as well. You know, if anything, I think there would be some honor involved. I mean, I can't help but think, you know, if I were driving the same car as uh, Jim Clark or uh, Gilles Villeneuve or, uh, you know pick a number of great great drivers i don't know i think there'd be honor in that not the other way around yeah i agree with you and it's not like the first thing you've got to think about is is the, the point of impact at the exit of tamborello and and you know i mean the sport the safety of the sport has been transformed in, in the last uh, 20 25 years right and and i just don't think formula one drivers think about the risk anywhere like they used to in the 90s or even you know when it was really dangerous back in the 60s and 70s so i don't think that's putting people like nicholas latifi off his game when he gets into the car so it does seem like a little bit of a more of a you know let's let's just clear clear the decks and start afresh but yet you know then why are you still using the fw moniker it just seems like there's a bit of a you know muddled thinking there there is one other way to think about it, though. We're now to a place where the majority of drivers, I'm pretty sure I have this right, the majority of drivers were born after Senna's death. So it really is a different era. What do you think about that part of it? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, there are a few. I mean, obviously Hamilton was born before, right? I mean, you've got a few drivers that are still you know, Alonso. Oh, yeah. But, but um, yeah, look, I mean... You know, Senna, 
like the some of the other names you mentioned, one of the all-time greats. It's, it's you know, people like Senna, what make F1 what it is today. And so I think, you know, there's always a desire in the sport to, to think about the, the, the latest and greatest car or driver. But, you know, it is what it is because of this history. And we sort of turn our backs on that at our peril, I think. Um, so... But how many people were even aware of that? Uh, I mean, how, how many times do you really see a Williams doing a Grand Prix these days, let alone, you know, pick out tiny, <laughs> tiny logos on the front wing? So right, right. it just, it's not going to be great shakes to anyone. It just, it's a, it's another link to the past that's been cut. And it, I guess for people who've been following the sport for a long time, it could be a little disconcerting. But, uh, you know, Williams, um, you know, they shook down their car in the rain. There's There's a little bit of curiosity around some of their... Some of their design executions, particularly again around the side pods, they've got very, very short, abrupt side pods, which have raised eyebrows. Um, so you've got basically everything from the really long ones for the Aston Martin, really short one for the Williams, and everyone else is sort of somewhere in the middle. And we'll see what makes the most sense. Um, I guess their new technical director goes by the name FX. Uh, he's thinking more of a long-term sort of five-year project <laughs> that may not bode well for Williams's performance of this year, but let's hope uh, let's hope they don't slip backwards and keep moving forwards. Eh? Well, and Williams is a team that you know. Obviously, I know you'll feel the same way. There's always a little bit of an extra place in your heart for that team, but also I am, especially after seeing the performance of Pierre Gasly being taken out of the Red Bull Red Bull Racing team. How is Alex Albon going to perform now being outside of the Red Bull Racing factory? Are we going to see him thrive again? You know, Latifi has certainly upped his game, but he's still not considered one of the top-rated guys. So how is Alex Albon going to perform? And how much better than uh, Latifi does he have to perform to start getting people's attention? Yeah, there's so there's a few thoughts to that. So first of all, Latifi wasn't a million miles off Russell's pace at various Grand Prix last year. Yeah, um, oh, he definitely picked up the pace, absolutely. And, and as a side note, I agree with Lewis's assessment that those people giving Latifi death threats over <laughs> over what transpired in Abu Dhabi are just idiots. I mean, dear dear God, I just don't understand that logic well, at all. The guy was. The good news yeah. is that those are the only types of idiots in the world we have to deal with. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> so, yeah, poor old Nick. He didn't mean to, to damage anyone else's Grand Prix. He was just minding his own business, trying to run his own. But uh, anyway, yeah, Albon has a chance to revitalize his Grand Prix career, doesn't he? And, you know, if you go back through his time at Red Bull um, or even... Was it STR when he raced for them or AlphaTauri? I forget if they'd been rebranded. I think it was still Scuderia Toros at the time. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I think, more competitive than people give him a lot of credit for, especially as now we've got the Perez-Max Verstappen comparison, showing that even Perez, with all his years of experience, a, a race winner, a fairly known quantity, was still a long way off Max's pace last year. And that puts Gasly and, and Albon's struggles in better perspective, I think. But Albon was unlucky, right? If he had not been hit by Lewis Hamilton on at least two separate occasions, one in Brazil and one in Austria, then he probably, he might have won his own, he might have won a Grand Prix himself, or at least got a really, really, you know, good second place or podium. He lost two, two opportunities through no fault of his own. 
so I think, you know, a lot of people sort of just wrote him off. But in reality, I don't think he did a terrible job. I think he will be, I think he'll be plenty pacey in the Williams. I think Williams do need, you know, someone like him, a young up and coming driver to fill the Russell void and to put the Williams, you know, occasionally up the grid when it when it performs well, which he did on occasions last year. Yeah, he'll have to outpace Latifi solidly throughout the balance of the year. And I think he'll have to put in some good performances now and again, but that'll be enough to probably revitalize his career, just like Pierre Gasly has done at AlphaTauri. So um, are there any other things you want to talk about with the cars? Because I'm starting to get a little itchy to have some predictions for 2022. This, yeah, there's two two more things we have to mention. One is the, the Ferrari, which have gone really crazy. I mean, Ferrari, there's two things that caught my eye about the Ferrari launch. I don't know if you see this picture, but there's a wonderful photograph of Matteo Benotto flanked by his two drivers, Carlos Sainz and uh, Charles Leclerc. Bonotto towers over them and his hair, they must have put it in the wind tunnel because his hair is literally about <laughs> seven or eight inches above the top of his head. Oh, it oh, is no. a really bizarre picture, I tell you. You would not think it was uh, a Formula One team when you look at that image. Right, um, like it was like so an old rock by. band or something. Yeah, it was, well, yeah, it was, it was it's curious. Um, so... Yeah, Ferrari are definitely coming out swinging. They're, they're claiming that they've gone bald on their car, and you just have to take one look at the side pods with the really interesting concave surface to sort of get that vibe. It is but they a say really that odd... every year that they've gone bold. I, I, I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. in the template for their launch. I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't, that doesn't carry much weight for me. I think it's going to be either successful or a bloodbath. I think if if it doesn't work, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of personnel changes at Ferrari, honestly. And it, it is a it's an odd looking design, and it's questionable whether it's the right design. But yeah, you know, again, until we see the lap times, we can't really judge, can we? Uh, and then Mercedes, um, another team to issue renders and then show a completely different car, which I really I really like that, that sort of bait-and-switch manoeuvre. And they're going back to silver. So we got silver Mercedes again. They also ran their car at Silverstone, so they've done a shakedown. And I, I think it had some interesting design elements to it. But we, of course, will be eagerly awaiting the first times that we get from Barcelona later this week to get some sort of sense of the pecking order. I think we won't truly know that until quali in round one, but We'll certainly yeah, get a better rain, idea who's struggling. Which is less than a yeah. month away now. That's right. Yeah, there's two, just two tests, pre-season tests, six days. I would expect we won't have the unreliability in these tests. I think most cars will hit the ground running and be able to do a lot of laps. But, uh, you know, obviously what, what configurations they're running uh, and what fuel load, we won't really be able to tell lap times. But we will get a clearer idea of all the cars relative to each other rather than these silly renderings or, or um, show cars. So we'll get a better sense of the real look of these cars and if there's a the common theme amongst them. And that'll be interesting. It's always I've, – I've trained myself to pay virtually no attention to lap times other than just seeing number – just as you were saying, seeing number of laps completed, how many laps accumulated, how much time are they in the garage instead of running laps – you know, how much are they going to a procedure, going to a plan, and how much are they adapting to something because of mistakes, those types of things. I think generally speaking, we'll have less reliability issues because we're talking about a largely carryover powertrain, but obviously systems, the routes systems have to take 
to get from cooling ducts to core components, et cetera, that has changed through the body itself. So there's obviously issues that can still come up. And, you know, maybe maybe someone uh, carried a number incorrectly or rounded up when they should have rounded down when it comes to cooling needs of a car, perhaps. But I think in general, we should expect the cars to run, be more reliable than, you know, other big rules changes. But uh, it's not until Friday and then really Saturday in Bahrain, so March 19th, that uh, we'll have a true understanding of where we are. And it's going to be interesting to see because it's going to be Bahrain, not Australia. So we're going to get a better sense of the car's relative performance after the first race than we would have done were at Australia because Australia is always kind of a little bit of a one-off and not entirely telling. Yeah, that's that's very true. I think Bahrain will be a better indicator although you know again with all the the sand that gets blown onto the track that's also somewhat been a bit of an outlier in seasons past but it should be a should be a better indicator than australia has ever been one note on the on the power units mercedes did come out with the statement that they think they've made the biggest number of power unit changes between seasons since 2014 and the justification for that is the the types of fuels they're, they're, they're mandated to run this year. So that that's interesting. I mean, it may also have something to do with their reliability issues last year. But there are going to be some changes to the PUs, as we talked about with, with Renault as well, So or Alpine. I would agree with you. I would expect them to be reliable from the off. But there are more changes than you might expect when we're supposed to have stable power unit formulas from one year to the next. No, fair enough, fair enough. We do have that test coming up, um, but like I said, the actual race weekend is March 18th through the 20th. But right now, line in the sand, who's going to be Drivers World Champion? Who's going to be Constructors World Champion? (laughs) Are you serious? I'm dead serious. We're in the predictions business, sir. We forecast. (sighs) Well, there was – so obviously we've got the first year of the budget caps. So for those of us who were – maybe under the misapprehension that everyone have the you know essentially the same resources um that's been burst because aston martin made a long long statement about how you know they're still going to be playing catch up to the the bigger teams for several years yet um as they build their new factory and resources and then obviously all the history and competency and capability of the teams that that were bigger and had, you know, bigger budgets and were able to research more things, that that legacy is going to continue for a while yet, even even in the budget cap era and the equalization on, on aero and CFD time. I think, um, you know, it was telling that Alpine, uh, Rossi, who's their CEO, uh, they're targeting fifth place in the championship. So, <laughs> I mean... That's, that's so they're great. obviously assuming, <laughs> yeah, they're obviously assuming that they'll still be behind Mercedes, I Red Bull. They were targeting podiums for 2022. Has it been made bigger up to five? five <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fifth place in the constructors' championship is what they were they were targeting. So obviously uh, they won a race last year, luckily. Um, so they're they're probably still targeting podiums at the very least. But in the, in the overall season, they don't think they can do much better than fifth. So best of the of the mid, well, no, I guess you'd call the Ferrari McLaren battle best of the mid pack, but best of the rest of the of, of the teams after the top four, the big four, if you want to call them that. The bottom line is, I don't think we should expect a huge 
reorganization of the order. Unless someone has really hit upon a really novel execution or interpretation of the rules like Braun did back in 2009 uh, with the double diffuser concept, I don't think we should expect that the you know, the balance of power has really shifted and we should expect uh, maybe a Red Bull Mercedes title fight again. And who's going to win that fight? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Robin, I haven't got that far. I want to see who's quick first. Predictions. You're predicting. Um, I like my fence. I want to sit on it. I think... Um, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, who was quickest at the end of last year? It was Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. So it's hard to look beyond Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes winning this year, isn't it? Unless, you know, unless Red Bull have uh, found some more performance. I mean, that's one of the big things that's coming out of the new cars is the whole, you know, steeply raked or non-raked concepts that have all been eliminated. So that whole... There's so many different things about the cars this year from prior seasons. So who, th- there is a lot of potential for someone to have got it really, really right or badly wrong. But I would expect those two teams to be at the, at the front. And I would expect uh, uh, Lewis and Max to be fighting for wins. I have to tell you, though, I just I absolutely love your anguish over this question. When you must intellectually know there are absolutely zero consequences to being completely wrong. And uh, yet, you're, yet you're still just you're just in pains over this. So I'm going to educate you in how this is done. I predict that because Adrian Newey um, is a brilliant, brilliant designer and tends to just always find just elegant solutions to new car designs, that Red Bull Racing will have the edge for 2022. And in Red Bull Racing, it will in fact be Max Verstappen. That has the edge over Sergio Perez. However, not by as much this year. That is uh, prediction number two. And I will, um, I'm going to add that I think Haas will still be in back. And they will be very frustrated that they are not somewhere in the mid-pack for 2022. Because they, quote-unquote, totally saved money for this car and been developing it longer than anybody else and blah, blah, blah. So... Those are my predictions. Now, if I'm totally wrong, nothing's going to change in my life whatsoever. <laughs> but if there are no consequences, then why not go a little bit, you know, more uh, avant-garde with your, your ideas? I mean, why don't we suggest that Lance Stroll will be world champion in his long side-podded Aston Martin? You heard now, it here first. Christopher Roche thinks <laughs> Lance Stroll is going to be world champion for 2022. We knew it. I will bet you a bottle of gin over that, Chris. It is done. All right. I love it. We've got Formula One testing coming up. The Formula One race is less than a month away. March 18th to 20th is the weekend. The same weekend will be the next big IMSA race. That is the 12 hours of Sebring. That is March 16th to the 19th. That race is held on Saturday. But IndyCar starts racing this coming weekend. IndyCar goes to St. Petersburg this weekend to uh, start its season on February 27th, I believe it is. And Who's going to win that race? What uh, An IndyCar will. And, <laughs> and, our, and our good friend, friend of the show, Rob Holland, will be competing in uh, one of the support races there in his brand new, I believe, GT4 Porsche Cayenne. 
So uh, Rob Holland will be at that race weekend. Well, there you go. Um, so what's your predictions for Rob's performance this season? He's going to dominate. Is that a completely impartial view? Yes. Okay, great. Is it Sorry, is it what what sort of uh, competitions he got? Is it one make? It, no, no, no. It's uh, SRO racing. So it's, okay. it's similar, similar but not the same as IMSA, but it's sports car racing. And uh, his car is in the GT4 class. I hope to God I'm getting this right. But I do know that it's a Porsche. It's, it's this coming weekend. And he is, in, he is an owner driver, Rob Holland, these days. And uh, he's heading to Florida. And uh, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly rooting for Rob. Uh, for this race weekend, I'm, the person I'm rooting for more than anybody else is Rob Holland. Very cool. I mean, if it goes well, then he could aspire to an F1 seat when Porsche re-enter the Formula One in uh, 2026. There you go. Yeah. And uh, we will say that a man of a certain age, as Rob is, could absolutely be in Formula One. No reason not to. The fact that he is <laughs> of a certain age and also physically big, you know, I don't know what his frame is, but he's he's well over six feet tall and wider than, uh, than Alex Albon. Probably He's probably two Alex Albons wide. And uh, maybe about as tall. So, <laughs> so anyway. Well, I mean, the good news is George Russell said he could fit in this year's Mercedes, whereas when he last drove one, he couldn't. So cars can be made for, for drivers of different sizes. This is very if true. You try hard enough. Hey, I just oh, recalled. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, I, you're on a roll here. I don't, I don't no. mean to interrupt your flow. But <laughs> uh, we didn't touch on the news that Michael Andretti has put in a – Formula One entry for 2024. Do you see that? No, what? He supposedly, no, I have not seen yeah, that. Yeah. This was spilled by by good old Mario on Twitter, saying that uh, Mario uh, Michael had issued the necessary forms, of which nobody's quite clear what on earth they're talking about, to enter the F1 World Championship in 2024. Uh, I that would be something. That would definitely be something. It, the FIA said, well, that's really nice. Thanks very much. We weren't actually looking for any new teams, but we'll let you know. But um, clearly, uh, having been rebuffed in his efforts to buy the Alfa Romeo slash Sauber team, um, he's still serious about entering the sport one way or another, which is very cool for fans of Formula One this side of the Atlantic. So, uh, you know, how uh, seriously that application will be taken and whether it'll actually result in anything or whether he'll actually be able to just buy another team we'll, we'll have to wait and see but michael's clearly still got uh a you know clear vision for entering the sport sooner or later wow which is cool yeah no that's very very cool i i'm kind of surprised like i'm i'm assuming he's talked to penske about this you know penske dabbled in formula one i it's uh you know michael andretti he never won the indianapolis 500 as a driver but he has won it as a team owner uh multiple times and uh, you know, maybe there's some unfinished business in Formula One. He's like, well, I'll do it as a team owner, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, I certainly, I, I'm reasonably comfortable to say I'm not alone in thinking that uh, Gene Haas, being an American owning a Formula One team, has been a bit of a disappointment for us Americans in terms of the Americanness of that team in Formula One. For Andretti to come in and be like just a real player in international motorsport as a whole and uh, being quite serious about getting into Formula One, that part of it is the most encouraging part. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems that the popularity of F1 in, in the US is uh, is, on a, is on a high at the moment. I guess uh, seats for the Miami Grand Prix sold out in like 40 minutes. So 
Um, and Austin, Austin's deal to run F1 races got extended through to 26. Um, and they've obviously had, uh, they had record numbers there last year. So, so certainly Formula One's in, in decent health in the US at the moment. But obviously for it to, to continue to grow to a wider audience, we do need more of a US obvious presence, I think, whether that's a, a team in the form of an Andretti, which would obviously an iconic name, or, or a competitive US driver, I think, would really help move it to another level. So we have to hope that that can happen sooner or later. Yeah. Because uh, Netflix can only do so much, I think. <laughs> that's right. But, I, you know, you, you feel you're, 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 in a, you're compelling me to remind everyone that Formula One is owned by an American company. Liberty Media is an American company. And the American involvement in Formula One in the background is actually quite significant. But just in terms of what the general fan sees, you're absolutely right. It's very much not, you know, we're, it's like Premier League football. Well, I, don't, I don't know what the average fan thinks of Formula One anymore in terms of, you know, who's who and what's what. I mean, it's all so opaque, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've got Mercedes cars that aren't really Mercedes at all. I mean, even... Even the team's uh, 40% owned by an Austrian chap. So, you know, and they have totally UK-based. So it's it's always been a, a complex understanding. I guess it's always been thought of as a Eurocentric formula. But, you know, it's always had a national, uh, you know, an international footprint. I mean, it's been a global sport. It's been a world championship as opposed to just a, you know, a single continent series. But, um, you know, the average individual who might be tempted to switch off NASCAR for F1 is going to need more of a draw than, than the whole sport is owned by Liberty Media. They might actually want a, you know, US driver to get excited about. That's usually what, what gets interest levels up, isn't it? I mean, if you just, just look at a recent case, recent case of Mexican interest in the sport, you know, obviously skyrocketed with Sergio. Uh, same in Spain when Alonso you know, came into the sport and started winning championships. I mean, the, the general interest in Spain had always been with, with bike racing. Right. Alonso, well, and you know, and England, when Lewis Hamilton came on, I mean, England, England didn't pay much attention before that, right? Yeah, there were no British winners prior to that. Exactly, right. exactly. There's, England had very little involvement in Formula 1 before Lewis Hamilton. Uh, so what else have we got in store for us? Are you gonna, who, who's, who actually is going to win uh, this weekend's IndyCar race? I think it's hard. Just like we have Mercedes and Red Bull Racing uh, being clear favorites in Formula One, we have Team Penske and uh, Chip Ganassi Racing in IndyCar. I'm, it's going to be hard to think that anything major is going to change there, though Roman Grosjean is now a full-time IndyCar driver with uh, Andretti Autosport, ironically enough. So it'll be quite interesting to see if he starts really making a splash now that he's in a big team, though and Dreddy Autosport has been a bit on the back foot the last few years. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I'm still kind of leaning towards Ganaski or Penske making a strong impression right away. And really, after last season, I think Joseph Newgarden's probably my favorite to win the race. So I'm shocked. I thought you were either going to go for Elio Castroneves or, of course, Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> well... I didn't want to take away your glory, sir. No, Michael Shank Racing, having Elio Castroneves back as a full-time driver is super cool. And Elio Castroneves did, in fact, yet again win uh, the 24 Hours of Daytona with Michael Shank Racing. So he is definitely starting the year off right. But, yeah, uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I said. 
So lots to lots to get excited about. Racing is almost back, despite all the snow here in Michigan. But if you can't even wait until this weekend, don't worry. I have a solution for you, and that is one of my YouTube videos. Uh, I've done. You know, we've had a few weeks in between where you know we're not not quite hitting the podcast schedule super hard yet since we're still in preseason mode. But I've done quite a few videos, and one that I wanted to make sure people knew about was the BMW M340i X-Drive. This is a 2022 car that is an M car, but the base level M car, but with all-wheel drive. It's a weird, like if you look at the what the tradition of an M car is, this is pretty far from that. And yet, if you look at what the essence of an M car is, this actually delivers quite, quite well. Chris, don't even ask me the price. It's very expensive, but it is a very creamy 382 horsepower inline six turbocharged inline six and it is just a blast to drive now the only question i have is how enormous were the kidneys they were i, I the three series has always been the the three series have been blessed with conservatism when it comes to kidney growth size so they're growing but they're not as ostentatious as they are on some bmw models this is no x7 here you know i remember the days when uh good old Chris Bangle sort of transformed BMW styling and it was very controversial at the time. I remember his, the first uh, 7 Series that came out after he'd uh, led the, the studio on that design. Yeah, with that stepped uh, rear of, that turned yeah, a lot, a lot of heads, of, yeah. The bustle back, yeah, the, a lot of detractors on that. But that that's a drop in the bucket compared to what they're up to these days. I mean, they've got some very odd designs and... You know, I give them credit for trying to continue to forge their own path, but they're not good-looking cars. Well, but the, the M340i does not have the bigger kidney grill that the new M3 M4 has. So it is still the older style. Um, it, it's not the – well, I suppose the M3 M4 is the oldest old style, like the 1930s, 1940s era, kind of bringing that back. So it's not that style. It's the more recent history style kidney grill. But how yeah. long that will last, I do not know. I guess the problem for BMW is that I've been shocked a couple of times where some of the the modern Lexuses and uh, or Lexi and some of the Genesis models look so similar to the BMW design cues of the last sort of ten years that it's hard to tell them apart. So they've had to they've had to try and shake up their own styling to differentiate themselves again. But the result. Uh, is, uh, I'd say, controversial. Well, Chris, thank you so much for that. Without even realizing it, you gave me a chance to plug yet another one of my videos because not long before <laughs> I did the BMW M340i, I did a review of the Genesis G70 uh, uh, sports sedan, and that one had the 3.3 turbocharged V6, which was 365 horsepower, so a little bit off the BMW, and it is a V6, not an inline six, not quite a smooth running and it's 376 pound-feet of torque, so um, actually a little bit more torque than the BMW. But, yeah, that car is a very clean, very well-executed, compact sports sedan. And, uh, yeah, also very, very economically priced compared to the 3 Series. I mean, in terms of test car to test car, there was more than a $25,000 difference in test in price. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty significant. No doubt. But if you check out both videos, you'll have a complete understanding of how I think of them and uh, be entertained all the while. At least I desperately hope so. But, Chris, before we go, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, No. 
Yeah, we've, we've covered quite a lot. <laughs> so for now, I would like to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, what a great conversation to have on a rainy Tuesday afternoon. Thanks, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.